In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Hey, it's Jordan. Today, I have a special treat for you. This is the first episode of the new season of Frequency's acclaimed series, Heaven Bent. Heaven Bent is a fascinating listen, because host Tara Jean Stevens is a former evangelical Christian who explores the world she grew up in. Not to expose it, though every season, including this one, has some shocking revelations, or to defend it, but to understand it. During a time when there is so much pressure to build up or destroy institutions, TJ's not doing either. She's taking us inside them, figuring out what draws so many people to this form of Christianity and how ugliness can so often be found hidden in places that preach beauty and light. Please give a listen to the first episode right here of season four, introducing you to the International House of Prayer. If you like it, you can find the rest of the season and every previous season on the Heaven Bent feed at Frequency Podcast Network or wherever you get podcasts. My mom happens to drop me off right as like perfect timing. My friends are walking up from the other direction to go into the main doors. So we 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 walk in and my sister comes bounding out. She's she's about six inches shorter than me. She grabs my hand, pulls me in. She's like, you have to see this. You have to see this. And I'm like, what? What do you mean? And she's like, you have to see it. Like, I look back at my friends. We all shrug. Like, it can't be that great. Like, you know, it's just worship or something. This is Heaven Bent. I'm Tara Jean Stevens. My sister just goes, watch this, and points at this guy about probably 50 feet away from us, walking towards us. And that's Matthew Moresco. He will never forget November 2009, when wild and unusual things started happening at the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, Missouri. And she, like, makes a gun out of her hand and kind of drops her thumb, right, kind of pulling the trigger. And in my mind's eye, I saw a, like, it, it was almost like a vision, but not that real. I saw a bullet of fire shoot out of her hand. Why is the bullet on fire? So I'm confused about what I am seeing, right? Imagining. And I see this thing travel. It hits him in the chest and he literally physically responds as if he gets shot in the chest and like kind of doubles over a little bit and just starts laughing and shaking like there's no tomorrow. And then he like looks up like, what just happened? And sees her, he points at her and laughs and she just goes, you can do it too. And so I immediately point at a guy about, you know, 70 feet away, still facing us. And I do the exact same thing. I, I shoot and I watch this bullet of fire hit him. The exact same stuff. He kind of falls onto someone. He looks up. This guy didn't see me. I know, cause he like, I put my hand down immediately. And he, like, looked around, like, where did that come from? But now, at this point, I'm like, no, 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 this can't be real. So then I shoot a guy that's easily 100 feet away from me, 
walking the opposite direction. Cause I'm like, you know, the other two guys, they could have caught it out of the corner of their eye. This guy is facing the other way. There is no way he could see me. And so I shoot at him, bullet travels, hits him and he gets like, he responds physically as if he's shot in the back. Like his arms go out to his sides and he just falls onto a person in front of him. Just like, like slams into them basically and they almost fall over and then kind of catch him and they're like laughing like what and he's like oh, i don't know and they just like laugh laugh it off and i'm now staring at my hand like what is happening and at this second i'm not even joking at this second my friends had finally walked into the building because this didn't take that long they now have walked up to me and they're like so what's going on and i'm staring at my hand like i i don't know i, I don't let's go find out and so that was like day one of me experiencing all this it was and i just it just got weirder from there On this new season, the International House of Prayer, or IHOP, or sometimes IHOP KC. It's a multi-million dollar, non-denominational, Christian organization that boasts a 24-7 prayer room and an unaccredited Christian university called IHOP U. And IHOP U offers full-time ministry, music, and media training. Thousands have been through its doors. And whatever that was that Matthew was describing, it started amongst the IHOPU student population. And for that reason, it was dubbed the Student Awakening. It featured laughing fits and shaking and screaming and crying and extra long prayer and worship meetings with all these claims of supernatural healings. It made headlines, and it drew thousands of curious people from all across America, from Canada and around the world. It's what put IHOP on the map as a sort of religious tourism destination. You know, it's more than just a traditional church. It's to the extreme. It's just the weirdest community, and I cannot compare it to anything else. Like if there was anywhere that could fix me, if you will, then it would be this place. But as you'll learn later this season, the Student Awakening is not the only event on IHOP's timeline that's worthy of looking into. And it's certainly not the only time it's made headlines. She was really delightful, really lovable. I think of all the people in our group, I think she was the person who was most beloved. I think if anyone else had died, it would not have been as devastating for us. The fact that it was Bethany was utterly traumatizing. But before we get deep into this world, Let's start by giving you a really great idea of what the actual prayer room is all about and how it came to be. And with that, episode one, the 24-7 prayer room. You can go get a burger at two o'clock in the morning. Why can't you go worship Jesus with other people at two o'clock in the morning? Imagine a rectangle-shaped room that holds about 500 people. No windows, 16-foot ceilings, rows of chairs and a stage. And in this room, in a show of extraordinary devotion, thousands of IHoppers work together to keep a solemn vow 
to facilitate non-stop prayer and worship 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Symbolically, it's like a fire that they've been tending since September 19th, 1999. I've heard the audible voice of God several times, wide awake, thunderous, audible voice. That's Mike Bickle, IHOP's founder and primary leader. This audio is from an interview Mike did on the Bible Beaters podcast. The goal of mission in IHOP is to pray and to stir up the prayer movement. There's a, a lot of folks would not be aware of this. There's an exploding prayer movement in the earth. 25 years ago, before we started IHOP, and I'm not relating this to us, there were about, there were a couple thousand prayer rooms in the earth where they would pray a couple hours a day, you know, 10 people, two or three times a week, something like that. I don't know the real numbers, but today there's like 30 or 40,000 prayer rooms, not two or three, 30, 40, it's exploding in numbers. Today, there are thousands of Christian prayer rooms in more than 155 different countries. And basically, they are dedicated spaces for communing with God, primarily through prayer. But sometimes, as is the case with IHOP's prayer room, it can also feature music and singing. Boy, do they sing. The IHOP prayer room has a glorious stage at the very front of the room. It's large enough to fit six singers and an entire band at any given time. And prayer rooms in general, they can be found in airports and church basements. But the International House of Prayer, it's in part of an industrial-looking, single-level, renovated strip mall with a big old parking lot out front. The IHOP staff is 600 people. That's a missions organization. Then we have a church on the side that's about three to 4,000 people. And the 600 staff and their family go to the church, plus a bunch of people in the neighborhoods. And to be clear, IHOP is not an assembly of churches, nor is it a franchise in any way, meaning there's only one international house of prayer. Probably a thousand groups around the world that wave at us and say, hey, we're your friends, but we don't have your name and they're not under us. We've been doing IHOP, the International House of Prayer. It's not the Pancake House. Don't, don't confuse us. It's International House of Prayer. We've been doing it 23 years. Although, fun fact, the International House of Pancakes did sue the International House of Prayer in 2010 for trademark dilution and infringement. But that lawsuit was dropped just a few months later with the agreement that the House of Prayer in Kansas City would forever abbreviate itself as IHOPKC, which it has ever since in any formal capacity. The folks that join us, they typically join us three, five, ten years then they go somewhere else. Some go to the marketplace, some go to college, uh, I mean, to a higher education. Some go to a ministry, some go to their home church they came from five years earlier. But we've had over 20,000 full-time people over these 23 years, and 19,000 are back, they've gone back home, 19,000. Okay, let's bring back Matthew. I was born in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, I was then raised in Thailand. Matthew's parents helped Mike Bickle start IHOP. So he was literally born into it. And even though he's moved away and he's not at IHOP anymore, he's still very connected to people who are still there. And Matthew, he feels about Mike the way most people seem to feel about Mike. 
that he's generally a really good guy with a huge heart for Jesus. A phenomenal heart, I, I would say. That's actually one of the reasons my mom stayed or became interested in here in the first place. And that's something I can say about him. We've personally known him for pretty much my entire life, good three decades. Um, and for example, he lives in a duplex. Like he sees millions of dollars go through his hands and doesn't take any of it. And he just lives, he works like 14 hour days, just in the prayer room, studying the word, writing his notes. Like the man is living the message he preaches. Can you tell me about why 24-7 prayer and worship is so important? I think most people sort of, even if you're not from the church, understand that Christians in particular believe that prayer and worship is powerful. But why the 24-7 aspect? So there's a lot of ways that we discuss the 24-7 aspect. Um, one of the simplest ways is we we look at the Lord's Prayer and how it says, you know, on earth as it is in heaven. And we know that in heaven there is 24-7 worship and adoration and exaltation of God's plan ongoing before the throne of God. And so we're, we're welcoming that to happen here. Can you describe it for me? Like when you walk into that space, what does it look like? What does it feel like? What kinds of things happen there? We are pretty solidly evangelical um charismatic stream where we don't have like the room isn't fancy the room isn't dressed up it's just a room yeah it is just a room in a renovated strip mall but ihop's thrown some serious money at it over the years there's been major updates a whole new setup it's slick it's professional we actually have a bunch of tables on the upper left and the upper right and some in the back that originally the vision was for people to be able to come in and actually like businessmen could be on their laptops doing business in the presence of God. And if you walk right in the doors, you're walking into the back, you will see a bunch of flags up at your up to your left by the ceiling. Um, and we, I believe we have all the flags of the whole world represented because again, we're thinking about representing before the throne of God. Um, so we're trying to represent all of the nations. But beyond that, and in at the far back corner, there is a, a picture, I believe it's from the passion of when Jesus is on the cross. Um, we have that over a space that for those who know fancy terms, um, you can take Eucharist. For those who don't know fancy terms, we more commonly call it communion. Beyond that, it's just a big room with a bunch of chairs, sound system. Down the far end of it is a stage. There's singers and musicians on that stage off to the side a little bit on the left, still kind of like a stage platform-ish, but a lower platform um, is a place where there's a microphone. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. This is authentic prayer room audio recorded by a former IHOPper on their phone. You'll hear more audio like this this season.
I've heard about a one, like a one-way mirror with like a room up in the corner where Mike would pray. So that's actually his study. I can't say he has his private library there because he has a lot of books. He's, he's been a minister for 45 years. He collects books over and over time. But he has quite a few books in that room. And so that's where he'll go privately to study through something if if he um, needs to focus more. That way he could be in his study working on something specific, but then still kind of have a, a feel on what's going on in the room. You know, back when we were only 50 people. And so if something went wrong, he could run out as quickly as possible was actually Quick, the idea. Quickly start praying. <laughs> uh, yeah. Or, you know, if, Quick, if something lights on fire or just anything. Yeah. Well, on that, I will, I will, it's one of the things I've been really curious about is it's been, you know, decades now since the 24 seven prayer started. Has there been any panic moments, you know, where one, where there was only one person, you know, keeping that alive, keeping that fire alive? Oh, that's there... what's fun for sure. Um, yeah. It's like a game almost. Yeah, so we haven't had these in a long time. Panic isn't exactly the term, but the whole goal of all of this in, you know, why why do it all in one room that holds 500 people is because the beauty of 500 people in unity together. So the goal is unity. The goal is we're all praying for the same thing at the same time, joining in, in one heart towards one another, you know, blessed are, are those who dwell in unity. Um, how lovely is it when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity? It's that kind of concept that we're going for. And how about where the idea to do this even came from? According to Mike Bickle, it was a being of light. This well-worn story goes that in 1982, he would have been 27 at the time, he says a being of light appeared to him during a trip to Egypt, and it told him to build a tabernacle of David in Kansas City. In the Bible, David is the young shepherd who slays the giant Goliath and goes on to become the third ever king of Israel. And biblically, King David is known for establishing a space for nonstop prayer and worship, day and night, night and day. And he does this by hiring or paying for thousands of musicians and singers and staff, you know, people to mop and clean. And Mike didn't have a king's riches, but come the late 90s, he did have a plan. And it was inspired by Youth with a Mission, a.k.a. YWAM. It's the biggest mission organization in the world. They have 30,000 staff members. They've been going 60 years. Anyway, they're a household name in the mission world. All their 30,000 people raise their own support as missionaries. So when I resigned my church 23 years ago, I'd been pastoring 25 years. I resigned that church, turned it over started this new missions organization with 20 young people and we had no money so this horrible idea we're going to raise our own support like YWAM my wife said what I don't know how else to do it there's no money and we have to do this full time it ends up it worked shocked all of us our staff grew to a thousand we had a thousand full-time people for 10 years I mean this was their full-time occupation and they raised the money from friends. They were doing the work of missions in the prayer room and the work of missions and all kinds of outreaches and different things, whatever, whatever. But for 10 years, we had about a thousand staff. Now at the 20th year mark through COVID, we're down to about 600, but 600 full-time staff. That's our core organization. And the church again is an offshoot that came out of this. I'm not, I go to the church all the time. I teach at it a bit, but the day-to-day leadership of it, there's about 25 people that do that. Again, this audio is from an interview Mike did with the Bible Beaters podcast. 
I've asked Mike and numerous people from the IHOP leadership team for an interview, but so far, I have not received any response. Hi, I'm Sean. I'm from Seattle, Washington, and I attended um, IHOP KC from 2009 to 2012. During your time there, what did an average day look like for you? Goodness. Average day was probably in the prayer room by 6 a.m., 8 a.m. at the latest. So I would get my six hours of prayer room in in the morning, six hours a day, four days a week, or however you wanted to to maneuver those 24 hours you were required to be in the prayer room. Yes, 24 hours in the prayer room. Most people are required to work a minimum of 24 hours a week in the prayer room. Many of them, though, end up putting even more time in. And that kind of blew me away entirely. I had never seen church beyond a very like Lutheran, non-denominational, you know, show up, sing a couple hymns, hear the pastor talk, eat donuts with everybody and go home. And this was like an event, like a very, a very big ordeal. It was my first interaction with prophecy, my first interaction with speaking in tongues, my first interaction with anything outside of like pseudo-normal Americana Christianity of the early 2000s. So this was like overwhelming was the, is probably the best way to describe like my first initial few interactions with them. And he might've been new to this world, but there was something about Sean that allowed him to move up the ranks quickly. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of fit the brand perfectly. I was a confident, young, attractive, very clear and good communicator. I'm 6'3". I was athletic. I am white, which doesn't hurt there. Once I figured out what they were doing there and what was going on, I, I bit down hook, line, and sinker. Something else you should know, IHOP KC loves young people. They've openly admitted to targeting that 18 to 25 age group in efforts to grow. Sean fit perfectly within that demographic. I was the brand. I lived the brand. I I was all about everything IHOP was doing. I truly wanted to be what they would describe as a forerunner, which is kind of the goal of every IHOPer. Forerunner. This is one of many important IHOP buzzwords. It's connected with what Mike Bickle calls the forerunner message, which is based on the belief that the second coming of Jesus Christ is going to happen in our lifetime or our children's lifetime. And therefore, we must prepare. So forerunners are the ones who say they are spiritually preparing for the unique dynamics of the end times. When you learn and start to go to IHOP, you very quickly realize the goal is if all Christians are members of the military, IHOP was the special forces. We were told constantly that we were Joel's army, Gideon's army. God is raising up an army of John the Baptist. He's very 
specific and very important people to what happened with the first coming of Christ. So we were told that God was raising up a second wave of people that were going to be in the spirit of John the Baptist or in the spirit of Anna or in these very specific people that were very important to the story of the Bible. God was doing a new thing. It was going to look like what IHOP is doing. We were the people that would be sitting next to God in heaven because we were going to, like there is Sunday church, there are regular churchgoers, but we understood the call of God in the in the time we live in. And we were to impact at a very great level the world. And we were supposed to be the ones that saw the second coming of Christ. We were literally praying and singing 24 seven so that Jesus would come back. Like that's the goal. That's the whole idea behind the prayer room. Mike Bickle was born in 1955. And according to his personal testimony, he became an evangelical Christian when he was 15 years old. This was after his football coach sent him to a Christian conference for young athletes. There, he heard Dallas Cowboys quarterback, Roger Staubach, talk about his personal relationship with Jesus. And Mike was hooked. And today, nobody, nobody that I have talked to doubts the sincerity of Mike's faith. And maybe that's too broad of a statement, but I'm serious. Like, even people who have a very sharp criticism of him, even they will tend to, you know, like, in the same breath say, oh, yeah, but he's a really good guy. He's also a powerful evangelical preacher with an emphatic belief that the Bible is the one and only inspired and infallible word of God. And I believe it personally versus I don't believe the Quran is, I don't believe the Hindu book is, I don't believe the other book is, and the, and the you know, uh, 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 we call New Age book, whatever books those are. I bet there's a bunch of them. I don't believe they are. I believe this is the only one. And the reason I believe it is because of a person with an experience is never at the mercy of somebody with an argument. And I have experienced the the reality of the Holy Spirit with powerful clarity in my life. And a person that has it, they just have to go, oh, that doesn't make any sense. And I that totally makes sense that it does not make sense. But once you have a number of those experiences and the Lord speaks to you and he actually makes references to those verses and it's really God speaking and there's no question to you that then it, the, the evidence is not so hard. It's not, it's not such a reach. But for a lot of people, sometimes even fellow Christians, the stuff that Mike Bickle preaches and teaches is an absolute reach. I mean, we already know about his stories of life-changing visits from supernatural beings. He also believes in the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit, so the gift of healing and the gift of prophecy. And Mike also, as you've been hearing already, he takes the Bible extremely literally and has a keen focus on the end times and that second coming of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes back, it's going to be a sunny day with a few clouds and the clouds will part and Jesus will come down on a white staircase with this halo of light around him. How do you imagine, like, you say it'll be a bold moment and everyone will know it will happen. How do you imagine it in your, like, sort of Jesus is coming back fantasy land? What does it look like? 
Yeah, so we actually have a pretty robust argumentation for there being about 150 chapters within the Bible that refer to that day, um, and they're pretty specific on what happens. Matthew says they include peace in the Middle East, as an example, and that peace will be specifically brought about by a man who walks into the temple in Jerusalem and declares himself to be God. He will then start a war against anyone who doesn't want to agree with him and or anyone who follows another religion, especially Christians and Jews, probably also Muslims and and any other religion as well. And then after three and a half years of war, essentially all over the earth, the sky will be black and Jesus will physically split the sky. So we see the rapture as those who are still actually alive and those who are dead will all be raised up because again, it's God, he can do whatever he wants and he's a little flamboyant. And so he circles the earth, picks everyone up with him, and then everyone returns with him to then march on Jerusalem where the man who declared himself to be God, the false God, is currently reigning from. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split-screen Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. In the whole thing of IHOP, there are things that are very difficult to, like, logically explain how they would or could have happened. Once again, Sean from Seattle. He had been at the International House of Prayer a couple years by the time that student awakening broke out in 2009. So he can tell us what it was like at IHOP before it started. It was a Bible-thumping, evangelical, we are eating the word, so to speak, and spitting out the bones. And then this is what Sean says it was like after, so during the student awakening. It was chaotic. Everything transitioned. It went from this very conservative, we are prayer warriors, we are Bible readers, we are we interact with the Holy Spirit through His Word, to a very much, very clear transition to, we are trying to get people healed, we are allowing what is normally a very conservative prayer room to blow up. You've had experience with Toronto, and I know the podcast has talked about it, it turned into a very, like, Toronto blessing feel. Roll on the ground, shake around, uh, scream or yell because it feels like there's, like, a hot fire in their stomach. Hey! Whoa! Come up! Come up! It's, ah! it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Take a drink. Don't sober up! <laughs> yes, the Toronto blessing. That was my focus for the very first season of Heaven Bent, a movement that I was impacted by as a teenager. And yeah, it featured similar phenomena like shaking and falling and writhing, maybe a little barking here and there, hooting, hollering for God, a lot of silliness. 
Also, like the Toronto Blessing, the student awakening drew a big crowd. So in a lot of my research, I've been able to find, you know, ancient blogs and old Christian media outlets reporting on the student awakening at IHOP. And yeah. they, they really paint this picture of thousands of people coming to Kansas City to experience what was happening, the room filled to capacity, overflow sections. Is that, you just described it, but is it like, was it like that to you? Was, or was there any kind of hype involved in regards to what was being reported? I, you know, there was probably some hype, but in the midst of it, it felt like that. Um, the overflow rooms were real. The, the whole staff was being utilized as a, as a volunteer army to help with parking and maneuvering people. And people were coming from all over the world to see what was going on in Kansas City. We were the group of people, the students and interns were the group of people that were utilized the most as kind of ministry staff and staff to organize the chaos. It was, it was wild, a wild kind of chaotic time of year. Were there other names for it? Um, not really, actually. Like people, people, if I remember right, outpouring might've been mentioned, blessing might've been mentioned. Back to Matthew, as he mentioned off the top of the episode, he was a teenager at IHOP when the student awakening was happening. Revival was definitely talked about in the beginning, but we we had a man by the name of John Wesley Adams who studied revival and he based his definition of revival on the Hebrides revival. And so because it didn't look like that, he was kind of he was one of the teachers at our school actually at the time. And he was like, This isn't it. it, it we we can't call this revival. This is not revival until like there is mass salvations. Like until until you are walking down the street. 10 miles from here and people are kneeling on the ground just weeping because of their sins and and knowing now that they need God like that that God is that tangible to them and real to them like that's his vision of revival and so that kind of we all bought that really easily that even if you know not everyone has to be weeping because of their sins but there it has to be a lot more than what we were experiencing on the IHOP timeline the student awakening started just a few months after IHOP's 10 year anniversary was this move of God a reward for 10 years of nonstop prayer and worship? Some IHoppers seem to think so. But despite other movements like this lasting for years, in the end, the student awakening only lasted about nine months. Was there a specific time that it ended? Like, was it declared over at some point or did it just sort of fizzle out and things went into a new normal? <laughs> I'm a little biased, so what I'm about to say is slightly biased, but as as a lot of things at IHOP, um, when things don't go the way that they are communicated or prophesied or whatever, they tend to just kind of disappear from the conversation. So the student awakening events those slowly transitioned just back to normal. I believe there was a staff meeting, like an all staff meeting, where everybody who is considered staff um, meets and Mike addresses them. I believe Mike explained they were no longer pursuing that directly and wanted to get back to IHOP. Like that was really the only communication that we had, but then it just was kind of done. We just it sounds kind of almost made- like they stopped it. 
from yeah for sure they absolutely it just they just kind of put an end to it it was fizzling out in popularity around that time too it's the uh national popularity so like it very quickly went from people coming to experience it to then it died off and it was mostly local people and i believe the decision to stop it was because it was there was no one else to pray for basically in the local community now, today, looking back, your point of view has obviously changed. What was the student awakening really all about in your mind? We were the Bible readers. We were the prophesiers. We were the prayer warriors. We were doing the thing, you know, we were we were storing up our gold in heaven. We were hiding from the world to live in another age. I get different answers about how the student awakening finally came to an end, depending on who I ask. But I have heard stories about several people sharing at the time that they had had similar prophetic dreams that God wanted them to stop and wait for an even bigger wave. But no matter what, when the student awakening finally did come to an end in 2010, one thing was clear. The International House of Prayer was a happening place with an increasing popularity amongst zealous, young, evangelical American Christians. How has IHOP handled the spotlight and the growth? How has leadership handled the wide variety of challenges that come up when you're personally, pastorally, and administratively caring for so many people? We'll try to find out this season as we explore their extreme beliefs and spiritual practices. I was fasting because I was told if I fast, I will love God more and I'll be a better Christian. But I was effing starving. We're also going to hear more about IHOP's captivation with the end times. We were going to cause people to die by praying for them to die. Why, why would you, what do you mean praying for people to die? Like the, the judgments in Revelation, the locusts and the meteorites and blood raining from the sky. He said that we were going to cause that you know it's not shocking that that type of behavior is a result of that when you teach people to literally interpret this piece of scripture since i launched heaven bent in 2020 ihop has been by far the number one requested topic for a future season and in preparation for this i've interviewed dozens of people what words would you use to describe the International House of Prayer? I'd really go with uh, faithful. Well-meaning. Trying. Over the next five odd, episodes, you'll hear about the personal journeys of some of these former eyehoppers. Probably dangerous in some ways. Joy and time. Over the next five episodes, you'll hear about the personal journeys of some of these former eyehoppers. I've made several attempts to talk to current members of IHOP because I think it's important to include those perspectives, but so far, no one has got back to me. I trust there are, though, many of these current IHOPers who have had and are having right now deeply fulfilling and rewarding experiences. But everyone I've talked to, except Matthew Moresco, who shared his story earlier about being raised in IHOP, other than Matthew, all of the people who I have spoken with are speaking to me because they want their issues raised. You'll hear about their claims, their stories of personal and spiritual trauma, stories that primarily raise concerns about IHOP culture from 1999 until about 2015, 2016. 
their first words out of their mouth when I told them was, you better not be lying about this. You're going to ruin this poor man's life. Because like when you are a queer person within IHOP, you know, personally, I wanted nothing more than just to be able to not feel what I felt towards men, right? Since 2016, and even for years before that, I've heard about some ways that IHOP and IHOPU have worked to try and create better, safer experiences for everyone. But I have no evidence that these changes exist or how they may have impacted culture, because to date, no one from the IHOP leadership team has responded to my request for comment. If you're at IHOP today, please reach out. And with that, coming up on the next episode, Rachel. I remember when we were setting up, they had us write scriptures on the concrete floor before they laid the carpet. And we thought that was really cool, that we were part of something like that, and they made a big deal about it. She's going to share her experience there and the reasons why she says she eventually left for good. No, I just don't trust, like, the leadership, the accountability. I feel like there's a ton of... um, abuse that's allowed and also a ton of mental illness that's just not being properly treated. And so whenever something bad happened and I voiced it, it wasn't addressed. I was brushed aside and I learned to just dissociate instead of, you know, stand up for myself. I just learned to just kind of assimilate basically. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.